Why, hello. Welcome to the Theology Podcast. We are really glad to have you with us for this show. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor of the Pacific Northwest. I pastor the Westminster Presbyterian Church, the most common name in all of Presbyterianism. <laughs> uh, closely followed by maybe Covenant. But anyway, um, uh, I've written some books. My latest book is In the House of Tom Bombadil. I've been a real estate investor and a home improvement contractor and a professor of philosophy. Enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine, um, and that's true whether this is your first time joining us or not. Um, <laughs> I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and my latest book will be coming out in March. Uh, right. from Canyon Press. Uh, at least that's what they tell me. Um, <laughs> it's called uh, 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. Well, you're going to be in Moscow next week, so you can really put the fire to their feet on this one if, you're, <laughs> if, if they don't come through. <laughs> well, hopefully that will be unnecessary. <laughs> but um, actually, you know, thinking about the No Quarter November videos, putting the fire to their feet is kind of an interesting <laughs> metaphor. Yeah, that is, that is. Yeah, you'll have to suggest that to them. Like, uh, but, but that you know that. <laughs> and I just had this image now of Doug at the stake, <laughs> burned as a heretic by uh, the people over at the Gospel Coalition or something. But anyway, <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> right, right. I, I think I, I think that's the next. I, I do believe that is the image that they will use now that I have uh, put. It on the air. They're going to have to do it now. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, Tom, introduce yourself and the subject of the day because it's your show today. Okay. Um, I'm Tom Price. I teach uh, theology, uh, Christian thought, ethics, philosophy, and a few other things. One of the places is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And I have been making the speaking rounds lately, kind of putting out there some of the material that will be the book that I've long promised. Um, and the feedback has been very good. It's allowed me to kind of cut some things that didn't need to be there and, uh, and uh, run and clarify some others. I've been excited. I just actually, speaking of Westminster, I just visited Westminster, Massachusetts, um, well, up there, Little Lutheran Church, Our Savior, invited uh, me up to kind of uh, talk a little bit about this material and a lovely nice. group of pastors in a beautiful part of the country, oh, even yeah, if it is nice. in Massachusetts, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Do you actually always... have a Lutheran church in Westminster? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah no, the oddity. And the, and the great thing, you know, homecoming for me, one of the retired pastors attending uh, the talk studied under my great uncle when he taught in at, at uh, in Fort Wayne at Concordia uh, homiletics so uh, oh, that was that was a nice nice little homecoming 20 minutes from the church my mother grew up in <laughs> wow yeah. now they didn't name it well, you, I think you gave us the name, but wouldn't it have been fun if they had named it Westminster Lutheran Church? Yeah. <laughs> they went for the Our Savior angle. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Hey, hey, before I forget, I do want to say early on in the show, to uh, speaking of Presbyterian things, uh, or at least alluding to them, we have been invited by one of our benefactors to have a live show at the PCA General Assembly in Memphis. Mm. And for no other reason than barbecue, 
I think we're going to make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there'll be uh, some uh, stuff that we'll be putting out uh, to get folks uh, up to speed on where it'll be and all of that. But something to look forward to if you have nothing to do and you happen to be in Memphis uh, or if you're stuck at the General Assembly and you're in Memphis, (laughs) you can come, come and hang out with us a little bit. Anyway, Tom, take it away. Okay. Well, today, the, I mean, the running title is um, sort of artificial culture and technology, well, artificial society and technological culture. Um, for those who are familiar with, of course, uh, Eliel's work, um, you know, the technological society and, and culture, I'll be drawing a little off of that. And you may know the term um, artificial society from uh, Matthias Desmet's book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Um, so uh, these are not original titles to me, and I'll be riffing off a little bit of, of their work, but uh, I'll, I'll also be riffing off of, uh, out of Oliver O'Donovan's recently re- uh, republished book, um, Begotten and Not Made, which is actually a brilliant work. It should be in your library today. Um, it, it was prescient and is completely relevant for helping us navigate our times. And so, yeah, the, the thing that drives this theme of interest to me is how do we navigate our time, you know, as, as Christians and, and the church within the conditions of our current Western identity crisis? Um, we, you know, if, if we just start with human nature, um, the classic sort of Christian contemplative wisdom was prayerfully, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? Um, and then there's this rich unfolding of what it means to be a creature made in the image of God, placed, you know, placed with the dignity as part of creation. Well, take God out of the mix, um, especially the classic Christian view of God, and all of a sudden the question becomes sort of, you know, what is humanity? Um, and to at this point, uh, you kind of take uh, anything significant of nature out of the mix, and now you have, you know, is there humanity? <laughs> is there any way to differentiate the human from anything else other than just sort of uh, in, in a sort of uh, maybe a uh, certain kind of quantifiable way? So we're going to be kind of looking at some of this. Uh, Chris, you want to run with something? Well, it just, it just reminded me of the fact that uh, the paradox of our time or the irony of our time is that uh, when I was a— when I was younger, back in the 80s, everybody was commiserating uh, the triumph of secular humanism. Yeah. And, and of course, the paradox or the irony is, is that the, the secular humanists don't even want to use the word human anymore. So, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's, 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 it's in a sense uh, evidence that there was uh, some residue of the Christian faith yeah. uh, in the human, humanist traditions of the West uh, that, uh, you know, people— initially with the uh, the enlightenment celebrated kind of the you know man at the center of things man as the measure of Pythagoras yeah. statement now now that's uh not even the case anymore as you've you, as you noted it seems as though humanity is passe with transhumanism and all that stuff yeah absolutely it, it has been there has been a you know a, you know uh, what did Francis Schaeffer used to call it? This long line of despair. You know, <laughs> I, think, I think it was kind of a good way of putting it. <laughs> this kind of um, incre- increasing move from you know the glorification of the humane to the absolute denigration and elimination. Um, and uh, Glenn, I can see something yeah. ready to jump. So let, I'll let you go I, with it too. <laughs> I, I, I've been sort of pondering this from a linguistics perspective. This is my you know my my undergrad degree was in, in linguistics. And the English language is, I maybe a couple of other modern languages, but 
we are the first language to make a systematic effort, at least, at eliminating words referring to male and female, adult and child humans. Yeah. Okay. And now we've eliminated words like husband and wife, father and mother. And there was an article that just came out um, where an, an ethics, scientific ethics group in Britain is arguing that we should use uh, what were, what was the terminology? Um, sperm creators and egg donors, or something like that, <laughs> instead of father and mother. I mean, the, the my has a natural dwindled. <laughs> the, the absurdity of, of this is, is kind of beyond belief, and it it's I think symbolic of a war not only against humanity but against reality. Well, this uh, is in which, in which humanity is the 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 uh, prime front. Yeah. This is what I mean, I think, at, at the head by artificial um, society is that the, the artifactual and we're going to get there. I hope to unpack it. So let, let's keep your point there and let me kind of step into it, um, maybe a, a little back to kind of give people some uh, context to kind of what O'Donovan's up to. And I think the, both of the points you just made, you're going to find fit right into those initial sets of, you know, how did we get here? And, and okay, now that we understand that, and of course we've been at this for a while, so we understand that. Um, but look at the, look at the kind of identity crises that are created or the reality crises, um, and the relation to reality, uh, that are created. And, and think of this just before I jump into the kind of common churchgoer, you know, um, the, you know, the grandparent who all of a sudden their grandchild's coming home and saying, Hey, look, you know, I can if I want to be a boy or a girl or whatever in between, I, I can do that. It's within it's within my competence with the help of, you know, kind of uh, a medical technique um, to do that. And there's nothing wrong with me doing that. And as a matter of fact, there's nothing that should limit me from doing that. And, you know, what is that? I mean, yeah, a grandparent can wisely say, look, you know, you've been created good. You know, even though we're in rebellious rebellion against it, you can receive that gift and, and, and not, you know, chop it up if you will. Um, but they may not have much more resource of how to go about navigating. And even if they can't convince those that have already been convinced, how do you kind of shape and orient and navigate a church to, to keep to its own resources and vision at a time where it's been going, you know, been thoroughly attacked. And I think uh, one way into it, and, uh, and for, for those, especially you two who have heard me go through this story and the way I go through it, I'm going to give it the tiniest synopsis. For me, I, it's very helpful as a theologian to recognize that theology and spiritual intellectual aspects are significantly at the roots of all these things. There are others, all of the conditions of contingency and history and nature, um, but that they are not severed from the theological and the spiritual, therefore thus the intellectual in some way. And I have went on and on and on to, to kind of explain why we've gotten into the kind of irresolvable tensions um, that end up with these kind of conflicts and contradictions, you know, in views of, you know, what, you know, the pathologies of our time in relationship to what it be is to be a human and really the 
polarities within a kind of shared worldview, if you will, that arise and can't be resolved and they create more tensions. And so I'll get I'll get to that. But one of the things that happened as I go on and on about is that there was a shift from a classical view of God's relation to the world um, in which, you know, God basically was not like the pagan deities who was on the same plane of being, but at the top. And so in the pagan world, as we know, basically God and, and the world needed each other, um, if only to be opposite so they could distinguish each other. Um, but there was no such thing as a God that was the source of all things on God's own plan of reality, right? And so language like being and becoming, right, um, in, in the pagan world, these are uh, they're antithetical, right? So when the incarnation of God in Christ comes along, the church says, wait a minute, the pagan systems are not going to work because you cannot have antitheticals related in the human, human divine relation of Christ. So we have to rethink the way transcendence works and the way divine involvement in the world works um, in a Christian way that doesn't lock God into one oppositional reality within the one reality that is, Right. So they break holds and they use that language in a different way. This is what I think a lot of Christians who are against the philosophizing of the early church don't get. That language is not being used. They're using the same terms, but they're breaking those terms open to serve a, a radical different view of God and God's involvement in the world. You know, what's kind of fun is that um, a children's author, uh, actually a young adult uh, novelist, uh, Rick hmm. Riordan, uh, who mm. wrote the Percy Jackson series actually mm. gets this. Wow. <laughs> and, and what's fun about it is, is, you know, the, this, it's the Percy Jackson series and Percy Jackson, you know, is a character who is a, a, a demigod. Uh, you know, he's, a, he's the son of Poseidon or, you know, Neptune in the stories. And, uh, and in, in the introduction to the very first book, uh, Rick Riordan says, you know, uh, he, he's, he's make, he actually is getting into the nature of these gods. Yeah. And ba basically, he's saying that they, they're, they're just what you just said, just bigger versions of us. Yeah. And then he, then he raises the question, is there a God? And he says, well, that's theology, and we can't get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he, he notices or he notes in, yeah. a, in a young adult book, <laughs> the thing that you're talking about that many people uh, don't understand they when don't. they think about these things. And so what the church did is if it wasn't – what it recognized is, one, God is so transcendent because God's the source of everything that by being its source, his relationship, the free source to everything, his relationship to it is free. He's not determined by it even though it is determined by him all the way down. But that determination is not a negative. It's a plus because it's the means by which we receive all the gift he desires to communicate to us. So there's a harmony between what it means to have our natures and unfold them in accordance with God that isn't conflictual because they're not opposed. And so God isn't, isn't God in opposition to us being material. God is the God that sources us to freely be the material within our own order of, re of relation to him. Secondly, divine involvement in the world is not limited. The pagan, uh, the pagan vision, the divine was seen as like the most intelligible, the most permanent, and the most stable. And the only places in which divine involvement was in the world were those places where there was things that were most stable, 
most intelligible. But the whole world of becoming and the chaotic order was somehow not related to the creator, was out of the creator's control. As a matter of fact, the creator had to work with it because it existed alongside the creator. It actually preceded. It's not ex nihilo. There's a material world that's a substrate of everything the creator has to work with. And so we don't have the Christian vision. We have one in which... Um, you know, sort of the divine craftsmen or the intelligent designers tweaking some things down here and putting a little little intelligence here. And um, but everything else is chaotic, doesn't know what's being and 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 source to God. Not so with Christianity, all of creation, the chaotic and void, as well as the ordered and structured owe themselves to the perfect God. Anyway, here's the point. What happens in the Christian vision is one of the things that is central to God is, is the fact that God is Lord. God is a sovereign will, um, but not only a sovereign will. All the names of God, intelligibility, perfect goodness, perfect, they all coalesce in the one reality, one triune reality that is God. They are different aspects of the same thing that it means to be God. Well, what begins to happen in the West is a little shift. And I think I consider it two steps. One step is it's a step backwards to the pagan vision. God is now brought back into the shared one of being. But there's a Christian deformative twist in it. Now this God is considered sheerly as will, not the intelligible stamp on everything, but fundamentally will. The intelligibility of God serves the radical free freedom of God. But now this God is not a radical will giving a whole creation. It is actually a radical will within the shared creation and is basically considered a threat. Now it takes a long time to get here, but when that threat happens and everything else is considered, basically, if it is, it's a will, there is a certain arbitrariness now to any imposed order because each individual thing is kind of stamping it with its own will and desire. Um, and there's a conflict. Um, now God sort of has to get out of the picture if the human is going to enter into the picture. And you see this with some of the humanism that, that already started in debates with the Reformation and the like. Is divine will going to have priority or is kind of the human will? And so you, you have a sort of a, a determinism on one side and then a kind of freedom on the other, but they can't both be harmonized easily um, in these yeah, pictures. It's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like the zero-sum way of thinking that we yeah. sometimes see in economics. Uh, the more you have, the less I have. In this case, it's the more freedom God has, the less freedom I've Freedom got. we have. Yeah. Now, what, one of the things that I've, I've wondered about with this move is the degree to which it may have been influenced by Islam. Yes. Because in many ways, that is very much, yeah. you know, that's very much the Muslim vision of God as being radically free and therefore radically arbitrary in, yes. uh, in his actions. Yes. Uh, there is absolutely nothing that can constrain God in any way, shape, or form yeah. um, other than his own will. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there yeah. was a book uh, that... I read it a while back, and I'm trying to recall the title. Basically, it was like it, 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 this, I, the title uh, implies how Islam lost its mind, <laughs> and it yeah. has to do with the rejection of Aristotle. Yeah, yeah, um, and the uh, kind of this early uh, kind of nominalist kind of take that we are kind of yeah. getting at here. 
Yeah, I'll 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 keep looking for it. I'm I'm not finding it, but anyway, but you're, you're right. It was to Avicenna and what was Av- yeah, yep, Averroes, yep, Averroes, yep, yep. These two figures that Aristotle, you know, comes back into fashion through through the Arabic and, and Islamic, well, the Islamic philosophers. But then there becomes a debate within the Islamic world between this kind of um, will will God's nature be determined by the rational um, aspects to which God would in some way be bound by rational reality. In other words, Israel, in other words, they're starting to pit attributes and you're right. This is what spills over. And, and if I remember right, it actually creeps in through the Franciscans, um, which yeah. explains eventually why SCOTUS will, yeah. will embrace some of it, not all of it. Um, just yeah. some, Com- some little coming in through Spain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if yeah it's, coming in, it's coming in through Spain, and it is yeah. definitely. It, I, I suspect I haven't really teased this out, but I suspect a lot of this has to do with uh, the Franciscans' conflict with the papacy over property. I suspect ultimately I, I, that that that's where it connects. And I actually believe Charles Taylor does, uh, if I remember right, his secular age. He actually does a little bit of of uh, look looking at that very very move. But but yeah, I think I think you're right. And, and think of how radical this happens. Okay, so you have basically a concept of um, radical arbitrary will. Um, you know. And then this is actually this is a deformation of of the Christian view of it, which is balanced with the full nature of God. This makes it almost a full nature. So any intelligibility is nothing more than the exercise of that 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 unfettered freedom. But then it's brought down into a shared plane with everything else, so that it is radically it's it's a paganized, deformed Augustinianum. Augustinianism with you know Islamic influence. I mean that's that's what we're dealing with, and now everything's under threat. There isn't a way to harmonize. I mean, so okay, so this is a you know this is a long way in, but once that do- fails to resolve, you start to have figures develop that said, wait a minute, it's the problem is because you basically have made in in the realm of of different beings, you've you've made God determinism or the human. Um, basically, radical autonomy—the the central figures. What if we make nature the central figure? And of course, nature here is not considered just kind of uh, static. It it is filled with, if you will, it's almost analogous to some kind of will of its own, right? It, it's a will to survive, the will to struggle, the will to power, whatever you want. Emotion it becomes, I think, the first kind of way of talking about it. Um, and so what you have is two different conflicting strands that are actually kind of immanentized versions of, of the, the, the debate before. But this time in, in nature, you have Descartes, the Cartesian line, if you will, the idealist line, which says basically, yes, we are embodied creatures. We have a real body. But we do still have something. We still have a radical freedom because that body isn't what's what's the the most powerful thing about us. We have actually a higher substance, almost like the like the God of the Reformation, which makes up our higher nature. And so we have an infinite capacity to exercise our will and intellig- intelligence onto the world. Um, that allows that natural body and its limits to to basically come into conformity. So the more capacity we have through our instrumental reason 
to understand and control the world, the more freedom we actually will have. We'll be as gods, if you will. Um, we'll be demiurges, forming things in our image and directing them to our paths. So we know that's one chain. Um, that's where Kantian man develops, and then it breaks off into you kind of uh, to you know you can it can break off into romantic idealism. It can break off into fa- I mean, it has its own ends: radical freedom. Yeah. What What's interesting about this is you know when you're dealing with uh, early modern Europe uh, through the Enlightenment, there are two different strands. You've got empiricism and you've got rationalism. Yeah. Um, the rationalist strand in Descartes is what really drives the French Enlightenment. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, which is then going to bring us to our favorite um, uh, punching bag, Rousseau. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but also Voltaire, all of these other yeah. guys. And, and with that, on a political level, the French Revolution. Yeah, because the idea is that we can use our reason to think through what will be the best Mm -hmm. approach to government rights, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, which which works great as long as you're the one holding the cord on the guillotine. Yeah. Well, this also gets us to um, Mm -hmm. kind of the observation that that a number of important thinkers like Augusta Del Noche and Eric Vogelin. I've made that our time is uh, a time of uh, Gnostic revival, um, mm-hmm. where this it's not this is not ancient Gnosticism for obvious reasons, but the, the family resemblance is impossible to deny. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you have here is it is a line that develops, and it has a lot of branches, as as we're noting. Um, that what that you know a lot of pe- people like uh, Stanley uh, Jockey. I don't know if you remember him and his book, oh, yeah. famous book, Angels, Apes, and Men. Um, that that this is the angelic line, right, or the Gnostic, or I, I just really think of it as this is us basically thinking, basically the voluntarist God becomes in a sense our identical with our subjectivity, right. It's limited, of course, by our, you know, you can see where Hegel's going to come out of this eventually, right? That God is becoming conscious through himself, you know, in, in history. Right. Um, right. And, and so you, you can really see where these threads come. But then the other side, as Glenn just mentioned, there was kind of rationalism pierces. Here's the, the other side that, of the horn, you know, just like we had radical freedom and determinism, you know, as some will argue, Reformation versus uh, uh, Renaissance humanists. Now you have in, within the nature, you have a kind of radical autonomy, Descartes in a sense. And then you have the Habesian line, which will become the kind of radical determinism that we're this is sheer materialism. And what the we're, we're kind of a radical autonomous separated individual things that are always at conflict and always in motion. And really the best we can do, like you say, is some kind of control of the state, Leviathan, right? Um, to Or we can actually, because we're now invo- evolved to a higher level of things, we can sort of transcend ourselves in some way and direct our own evolution, right? Um, so you end up in the same place from these opposing views, but they don't resolve. And I'll give you an example how they don't resolve. The way in which we want to have a kind of organic, um, you know, eco-modernist way of returning to the innocence of, of nature in our backing out of it, all the while we're okay with basically doing surgery on our, our own natural bodies. This is a kind of mess up I'm trying to kind of unpack. So, but so yeah. that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, it, this is where you know 
hippies from the sixties and their <laughs> children are at odds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you remember, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the original crunchies, uh, they thought anything natural was better than art and it's something that was artificial and, you know, so, yeah. you know, you had Bert who went up to Maine and made Bert's bees and, uh, all kinds of lip balm and Tom's yeah. of Maine and with natural floss and, you know, all <laughs> that kind of stuff. And now yeah. their kids are like pumping their bodies full of steroids and <laughs> cutting things off. And it's just yeah. crazy. Yeah. You know, C.S. Lewis said that in the classical world or, you know, historically, the goal was to, I forgot exactly how he put it, but the goal was to align your soul with reality. Yeah. And in the modern world, it is to force reality to conform to your will. Yes. To, yeah, conform, that's the word. Conform your soul to reality. Whereas now it's yeah. to force reality to conform to your will. Yeah, and that is exactly what actually, and I think Donovan will actually pick up that very quote. But one of the things he does at the beginning of that book, he's trying to look at that book is firstly dealing with kind of human fertilization and, you know, and, and procreation from these new changes in ethics that he was starting to see. And one of the things that, why his book is great, is sort of he begins with noting this radical shift now in medical research, science and practice, where the, its relationship now to the human being um, has changed, where at once it was the last frontier that science would go. In other words, it, it was okay and, and this was, I think, some, some, to some credit to some of the, you know, the people like Eliol and figures like that who recognized a long time ago how you are exploiting the environment in other natural kinds is going to come back to haunt you one day. And so uh, O'Donovan's saying, well, it's come back to haunt us. Um, so Christianity still up until, you know, rather recently and, and still does in some ways has play, placed the limit there. But that the, the rooting of that has left. And this is what I mean, this movement to the artificial. And, um, and he talks about, um, really one of the, the core distinctions, uh, he wants to make to still get a glimpse of what Christians probably held. I mean, Christians held versus today. Um, he goes to the, the Nicene creed where he begins with the notion that the son of God, he's talking about God here. Um, Jesus is begotten of the father, not made. Right. And so one of the things he wants to talk about here is something that's really lost now is this difference between begotten and being made. And so to be begotten um, in the creed is picking up actually an analogy from from human experience. But it's basically saying that begotten means of the same ontology, the same being. So the son is of the same being with the father. The son is not the result of the will of the father it's the result of the being of the father they share one being so like when we use the term um you know uh begotten today with regard to to our children we're saying that we're saying that yeah you know they're they're uh our issue they're they're the same nature as we are the same the same nature and so this is what and so what he's talking about this comes from human experience where human beings um who have procreate um, have offspring that share the same ontology, different than the divine and the son. But the way we do is we are sharing um, the same ontology. They're human being like we're human being. We didn't make them out of our self-determination and our, our will. In other words, we may have had a will to have children, but we don't get to make what they are, right? 
at they're least ontology. Early. At least yet. I mean, yeah, we're, well, we're working on that. That's where they're going. But we don't get to pick the ontology. Well, this is it. This is how he's distinguished it. Whereas making, um, now we are an interesting creature because on the one hand, we are made by God. That means we're at God's disposal, both for what we are and that we are, and that God is the law of our being, right? His purposes and his, his wisdom are ingredient for what it means to be us. But enacting ourselves on our own plane and on our own being, we, we reproduce offspring of the same kind, right? Um, and again, the distinction there is, is that. So, you know, that, you know, thinks it's, the difference between what we make is at our disposal. Um, it's it's at our self determination. Um, we get to pick what what it is in many ways. Of course, we have to work with raw material, but we're not we're not we're not procreating in a way that we are making the actual being of the human. We are we are kind of passing that on. We're we're participating in it with them, and so. Like Adonis says, now as humans, we're unique. On the one hand, we're made by God. On the other, we do get to pass this on. Um, but one of the things he notices is that that very distinction now is starting to be blurred. Um, Tom, mm-hmm. be- before we move to that, mm-hmm. th- this discussion, um, I was just sort of tracking it down. I don't have a Bible in arm's reach. But I don't think people pay a lot of attention to this. Yeah. Um, but in John 1.12, this has got implications, I think, for us directly. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's yeah. where we usually stop. Yeah. But verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. You, you, you've got an interesting, you know, uh, corollary in some yeah. sense, what you were just saying about Christ being begotten. Yes. Yeah. Christ being the only begotten son of God, which means the only one whose substance is one with the father. Ours is a share, a divine sharing of that substance so that a creature can share it in a creaturely way. So we're not substantially one with God. Um, although, but we do actually, we share, we share in, we share in the divine donation of that gift to us. It gets complicated on how to, I mean, that's why we, that's why we talk about kind of metaphysics of participation because it gives us one of the best sets of languages to, to, to balance it, even though it's not perfect. Um, but, but the, 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 where I was going with it was yeah. that verse is, is very anti-voluntaristic. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And this even, is, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah this, ahead, is, this also gets us into some interesting territory um like when we think of theosis yeah uh, you know it's theosis sometimes people uh who aren't, aren't familiar with the teaching uh confuse it with what the mormons are up to yeah yeah <laughs> so the mormons you know they'll say something along the line uh, of uh as god was so are we as god is so will we be you know that kind of thing as though god mm-hmm. is like in some kind of evolutionary kind of place. yeah and any any uh, occupies space and time like we do so the mormon understanding of god is actually a th- again a kind of falling back into the pagan ways of thinking god yeah. lives on some other planet and has a lot of kids someday i'll live on another planet and have yeah. a lot of kids too That's right. but but uh, the orthodox understanding is what you just described as we participate in God's being. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, theosis uh, is an entrance into God. We don't we never yeah. lose ourselves like like, yeah. you know, sometimes people talk about, you know, you were like a drop in. Yeah. The yeah, ocean. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, right. you know, you, you're, you're always going to be you, but you're going to be you in God. 
Yeah, that's right. And what happens there is a lot of people, maybe this is a good way to clarify it, is the more God-like, the more you participate in the divine life, the more the more the distinct creature you are becomes. The more the difference happens, the more the closer you get. The more the, the more refraction of that divine life that you specifically are is manifest. The closer you become to God, not the you don't get absorbed up into something. It isn't, it doesn't Chesterton say something along this lines? Uh, you know, essentially that the yeah. wicked are all kind of boring, and because they're so much alike, but the saints are so marvelously <laughs> variegated. You know, just they're, yeah, they're well, so different from each other. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I think that, and that's going to be important to come back to when we talk about the rich Christian vision that really contrasts the artificial um, and the artificial theosis, because I do think there is a, a an attempt here to not even not only see ourselves in some ways as kind of you know God or gods, um, whether it's the most advanced in terms of consciousness and evolution, or whether it's kind of my participating in my subjectivity in the infinite. In both cases, or myself, my capacity to self-express, right, or auto-create is the new new stuff. Um, I think all of these are variations of a perverted sense and a paganized distortion of Christianity in, the, in this new mix um, that perverts the image of God and really messes things up. So, but one of the things Donovan gets to is he goes, "What marks the technological culture?" Um, is and he he basically says, following El Yol, is not what it does, but how it thinks. And he taught, he's following George Grant here as well, the famous like, Canadian uh, philosopher, if I, if I remember right. Um, Not our friend from Tennessee. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, he goes, but it, this thinks basically that everything it does is a form of basically making and, and producing. So everything we do, procreating, whatever it is, is basically marked by, defined by, understood either as the product of our mating, making or the raw material on which we can actually start making, putting our own will and imprint. So everything is basically at our disposal of our will, um, and, and it can be determined through scientific technique to master, control, and direct. And he talks about like politics is now defined as making a better world. And it uses all the, te the various techniques, yeah. mass media and everything else to do it. Then human relationships now building, right, a successful marriage there, or relationship. There's this, this, constru yeah. this construct going on. He, he basically said this is where we kind of have ripped ourselves out of the, the organic doing. And he's not talking about the hippie sense, but the way in which we're connected and some things – you just, you know, it's like I, you know, you, some things are just the unfolding naturally of your relation to the natural world, which produces certain kinds of spontaneity that are gifts like real love and, and having fear of bad things and, and yeah. being able to to worship. Well, this this quest for total control uh, precludes, uh, yeah. you know, uh, gratitude uh, because yeah. of something that's been given to you. This yeah. also gets a, to, us to some, something that Del Noche gets into uh, with regard to Marx and his shift from Homo sapien to Homo faber. Uh, <laughs> the oh, idea yeah, yeah. of man, uh, the knower, to man, the maker. Mm -hmm. And his, his famous critique of the philosophers, you know, the, the point is not to, to uh, describe reality. The, the point is to change it. Change it, yeah. You know, so that sounds so appealing to young people like when they when yeah. they come across marx and in, in in his statements along that line it's intoxicating to them 
but they don't realize the, the price that you pay when you, when you, when you buy into it. And, and I'm going to throw a little hint out that's a little will be a little controversial, and it is because they've basically all internalized a feminine virtue ripped from the larger virtues called compassion. But I'll, I'll get there. This is something that Donovan brilliantly points out. Um, but one of the things of, of technological culture is it, it's it's got its hands on everything. And as we said, we've already have the view of humanity there. Whether it's what other strand you take is ready to run with this. Um, you can control your evolution by understanding the world and directing it into the directions you want, um, and and the like. So one of the things he said that goes away right away, though, in such a society with this psychology, it fails to be able to see any aspect of human activity which is a, not a matter of its own making and construct. And therefore, it loses to the ability to see the significance of natural things and kinds that aren't its business to intervene with. Um, and secondly, um, it, 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 it basically makes them blind to the capacity to see that there is anything other than the artificial. Um, and, you know, and so he says, basically, as a result, such a society is incapable of acknowledging the in inappropriateness of technological intervention into certain types of reality and activity. Um, every situation's raw material and the very grounds of creaturely freedom um, is basically, you know, they see being free as a creature as being able to play with whatever to make sure that any necessities that place a limit on us in, in terms of natural necessities should be able to be done away with to enhance our freedom and mastery of things. So, so the only reason you're saying that, Thomas, is you're, is you're a white man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're Eurocentric yeah. and, yeah. Uh, you know, you're just on top and you're trying to keep everybody down. They, yeah, but but, but I, I'm, I'm obviously speaking tongue in cheek, but yeah. that's, this is actually what people believe because uh, of these moves that you've described. Yeah. The yeah. only agency that we can acknowledge is the agency of other human beings, uh, yeah. not the agency of God. Uh, we can't yeah. even uh, acknowledge the intelligence of the ordered world that we live in. It's all just stuff. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 I actually think you have to take it a little bit further than that. You have to deny the agency of individuals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. So that, it, you know, if you follow through on critical theory, um, all the problems in, let's say, the black community are caused by whites. By us. <laughs> because, well, because, because, you see, they don't have agency. Right. The only thing they can do is respond to what we do. Yeah, well, but, it, but it's not we as individuals, it's we as a mass. But look what gets gets wed together there. This is where it's very, this is where, this is what I'm talking about, the conflicts we have that arise from this modern picture. So basically, the, the, the you know, white supremacy is basically identical with Cartesian man who, who has basically brought, um, brought, his will to bear by usurping power over everything else, willing to power and, and reach a state of basic power over everyone else with technology and just brutality, which has forced everyone else to basically remain oppressed under the determination, the natural determination of whites having it. But the problem here is your problem. If you're going to have determinism all the way down, then so is the top of the chain. They're just enacting the particular way in which matter. They're just, they're just responding to natural forces like anyone else. If you're saying they're more advanced 
in terms of their evolution, I think you have a problem that you're the one claiming they're supreme, not not themselves. I think what you have going on on the flip side is um, if if everyone is not if if everyone basically is made in the Cartesian image, the flip side, then no one is oppressed. They just may not happen to have, have uh, been able to bring more things under their control, whether that's being a minority or something else. So this picture doesn't end well for anybody. Yeah, Tom, but but you're, you're making a, a totally invalid <laughs> assumption that consistency <laughs> is actually a virtue. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, but it is interesting so, because I so have... Western of you. Yeah, well, I was I was I was reading a book on this, and so, somebody actually brought it up, and they weren't even a Christian, but they were critiquing uh, some of the moves in just critical theory in general. But it had a way of basically saying you are free if you have the the basic mean, you know, basic the the majority power um, of identity determination, and but how you got that must be illegitimate because it must be something you wrongly took where I don't know where this language of wrong and right and, and moral culpability comes from in a world that they basically argue is Darwinian. As a matter of fact, you'd be enacting what was true to Darwinianism um, if the picture they're painting was true. Um, I, I, yeah, it doesn't, it, 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 you're right, it doesn't pass the, the, the rational smell test and, and therefore it, any attempt to make it do so is just me trying to force uh, my will on it. <laughs> right. You know, it's, and it's, and so you get into these circular arguments and you get into these, um, you know, question begging statements that you come out of the left. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you, when you move it toward intersectionality, it gets even worse <laughs> because, <laughs> because with, with um, intersectionality and, uh, uh, I forgot what the term is off the top of my head, but the particular epistemology they use, um, that epistemology basically says that everything you think, everything that you believe, everything you think of as fact even, is uh, determined by your intersectional categories. So you are 100% determined. But, but, but here is exactly the kind of the point of this. This is why, this is a, an exemplification of where we live in an artificial society because they're saying there is no natural that we have access to. There is no reality that we can, we can bump up against. Everything Objectivity is, does not exist. Everything is removed from us. So it is all construct in, of our making. So it couldn't possibly be that you have any truth. It mm. couldn't possibly be that. As a matter of fact, my truth is recognizing that and then showing all the ways you're just trying to push your, will to power, because that's all we are at the end of the day, wills to power, on to everyone else to to make them basically serve your evolutionary advantage or their your political or power advantage or identity advantage over someone else's. So this is what ends up happening once once you can no longer that first category goes that O'Donovan's onto, the begotten versus the made, right? Once that starts to go, then the difference between natural kinds and teleology and then reality our relationship to realities starts to become blurred with what is our making and construct to where basically everything becomes artificial and construct and then add that with the voluntarism behind it and it becomes one will against another or one group's power against another or one imposition of their will on the world versus another and in who is a society to force its 
interpretation of what's good or bad or right or wrong onto anybody that may not fit that that larger grid, you know. By the way, I, I came across that book I referred to earlier uh, hmm. relating to the origins of some of this uh, trouble that we're dealing with in Islam. So the title of it is Robert Riley, who wrote a great book on the Crusades. I don't know if you guys remember that, but uh, oh. it's entitled The Closing of the Muslim Mind. I don't know why I didn't think of that. That's such an obvious uh, title. Yeah, to use. Yeah, yeah. But Robert R. Riley, The Closing of the Muslim Mind, How Intellectual Suicide Created the Modern Islamist Crisis. And he's, he goes into the very thing that you were talking about, Glenn, in that book. It's a great book. The, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, in terms of tactics yeah. on the left, what we're seeing, I mean, it's, it's standpoint epistemology was the word I was looking for. Yeah. That, that, that particular approach, which denies anything like objectivity, mm -hmm. um, ultimately denies, denies the existence of truth in any, yeah. any meaningful sense of the word, yeah. they nonetheless have a very firm idea of what truth is in terms of ethics. Right. Yeah. And yeah. on on one level, I, I can't entirely decide actually whether this is sort of a, a borrowed capital coming out of Christianity, the idea that oppression is wrong, yeah, or whether it's a kind of intellectual judo where you're using Christian values against Christianity. Um, it, it may it, it may include both of those, but I think if I can get to that issue on compassion, I have a feeling I know what at least what motivates it. Mm -hmm. um, it, it and it may be maybe O'Donovan will shed light on that or not. But I, I think if we hold that that point that that, you know, what is behind this notion of fighting oppression? I, I think he at least gives us some insight. But before I get to that, let me just say he basically says, well, how did we get here? Well, he calls it the liberal revolution. Liberal is everything we just talked about, this radical freedom being basically unleashed without limit and scientific technique now applied to it. And he said, but he said, how did it become a revolution? Why was, was there really no pushback when it started to move to doing this to humanity? Um, for example, very little pushback in any strong sense when the, the abortion debate basically said um, a woman has a right to do whatever she wants, determined, self-determined with her own body. Because his point was that is when medicine, medicine radically shifted from treating the sick to being able to be applied to otherwise healthy bodies, for psychological freedom, or 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 you know, the for for freedom of of the the subjective will, if you will. So what he says here then is, well, if that if that becomes the case, well, then all of a sudden you start to see medicine start to be practiced on otherwise healthy bodies when the psychology or, or the freedom to self determine or auto create is at odds with it. And he said, you see this happening, of course, with this, what Benny used the term transsexual movement with the operations. But he says, with every attempt to do this, there is a loss of actual freedom because our freedom is actually grounded in the reality. Um, it, it is what he calls naturally, you know, it has a natural substrate. That is, this is what I always say when I talk about premised freedom. Our freedom isn't radical autonomy. It's both determined by what we are and that we are by God, God, the law of our being, but also by our material substrate as well. We are creatures that are embedded and embodied. We have family, we have institutions, we have all these things. And this is exactly what they want to lift us out of, but they're the very things that give that freedom form. And so what he says is look at what happens when you actually do the surgical operation to, to try to switch nature. 
of, of gender uh, or the sex of a person. They can't procreate. They cannot, they can't either way. They, they lose the capacity. So they lose their actual embodied freedom. They actually aren't gaining. Now they could argue later down the road, they may figure it out. But he's talking about what happens when, when you do that. But he goes, how did we get here? He said, basically, he, he said, I'll disagree actually with C.S. Lewis and a few of these other people who argue that it's sort of the mad elite scientist groups sinistering, putting it on the world. He said, yeah, there's part of that. But it's also that a world has been made ready for it and wants it because it has embraced the technological culture and that view of hu- or those pathologies and those distorted views of humanity. And so it, it, it doesn't push back because it agrees with it, because it sees it all as their commitment to fashion the future for themselves. And this is where the totalitarian element comes in. Well, there's, you know, when we think about how, how this kind of, uh, uh, spread this in its most radical form in, in, in the acceptance of these transgender surgeries and so forth. You know, it takes me back to maybe earlier, uh, less, um, I think troublesome or, or, um, dangerous, but nonetheless kind of gateway drug things that you could mm-hmm. say helped to bring it about. So think about plastic surgery, for example, you know, yes. people who, um, seek to maybe change the shape of their nose or whatever, um, or augment their bodies in other ways by, you know, getting yeah. a, 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 you know, a boob job or whatever, you know, and, and we are get, getting that, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's that. Facelift. Then, then, but then we can kind of dial it back even more and, and say, you know, you've heard, I don't know if you've heard of body sculpting, this uh, approach to, yeah. to uh, body building, which is entirely, kind of soft, sort of, uh, you know, sort of obsessed with the perfect physique. Yeah, um, yeah. and you know, so there, there are a lot of other things that maybe don't like, cross a line, but this, well, there's a lot of like body dysphoria, you know, dysmorphia long yeah. before gender dysmorphia. And I think you're exactly right. And that was one of the things I, I was trying, you know, maybe to get here is that blurring between, you know, kind of ideal type and then technology being able somehow to do that where, and, and again, you can you can kind of see where this is where deformations of theology can slip in, because on the one hand, we, we are aging and dying. That's part of the fall and with the reverse of new life in Christ and in the, in the opposite movement towards life. You want to see a, the, your spiritual health kind of matched on the outside. So why not use technology to do it where we can um, fix those problems that the fall and ignorance and sin and death brought? But what happens there is we, we go, first of all, we're trying to do something that isn't in our competence to do, um, because that is the, that's the issue of the resurrection. And that isn't, that isn't our, our job is to be heavenly minded, put off the old, put on the new. It's not about the preservation of what needs to happen as still the result of the, the original fall and its outcome. Um, and secondly, what you have is there is there are parameters um, on which to do that. In other words, Donovan has this brilliant point where he talks about the way in which there is a Sabbath at the end of the creation week because God is has completed those natures, even if they'll be perfected in terms of righteousness. Um, he, they, they aren't a bunch of potential that we get to actually go out and perfect the way we want to. That's not part of our dominion. It's actually receive them as a gift. And so say, like we've talked about before, let's say the natural function of my ear is to hear, and I was born deaf in one ear. 
Well, using technology to help bring that about is bringing it back to a normative functionality. That's very different than putting a speaker system in my head where I can hear, you know, I can hear underwater, you know, in the ocean from here, right? Uh, you know, in other, in other words, it's not to say we can't use certain technologies for certain things, but augmenting ourselves in ways that radically, you know, build the artificial into the natural, um, that, that's where a lot of this, this kind of blurring goes on. Um, and so you can see, you know, you can see where the trouble began. And this is what I said, we increasingly become so familiar and used to these interventions, that we see some of them compared to the more radical versions is not so radical when if you really think about it, you know, you, you know, injecting your face with that stuff and making yourself look like a basically a blowfish in your <laughs> 80s. You know, I mean, it's a, and, and the only person who's, who's fooled is the person who did it. You know, the girl walks into the room or the lady or the elderly woman walks into the room and we all know that yeah. not only is she uh, vain, she's hideous. You know, it is. And they, <laughs> and they don't get the acting roles anymore when Hollywood does. I mean, other than the, you know, the hideous, you know, well, they're all hideous now, but, but they, they fit right in. But they even have standards. Well, <laughs> actually, if, if you want to find, you know, we're, we're picking on the women here primarily, although the men do the Botox stuff, too. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but you want to yeah. see a more extreme example, in my mind, for, for guys there are some people who are obsessed with sort of the bodybuilder image that yeah, do that injections yeah. to artificially <laughs> inflate their bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's called synthol or something yeah. like that. And you look at these guys, and yeah, I mean, yeah, you got they, guys. They, they, look, they they look like something uh, out of a Marvel uh, Hulk. <laughs> Yeah, sort not, of, not, uh, not even not even a good one though. But you, you see some of these. Not guys, even a good one. Yeah, they've yeah, got the a, bad they've guys got a that, that inch, do that. They've got a twenty-inch bicep and can't do a pull-up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and their head is like this. You know, it's like it's, it's real tiny, and the rest of. <laughs> but but it, but it, but you know, I, I just I, I felt like we needed to throw that one oh, in yeah, yeah. just yeah. because an example because yeah. it's not it's not it's not just well, the the actresses no, trying no. to get parts unless you want to. Uh, but, but you're right. Yeah, look at Mickey O'Rourke now. I mean, <laughs> I've not seen him. He's as guilty as the actors. Oh, you don't want to see him. Uh, hideous is the, from the Reconstruction. But, oh, okay. you know, well, John Kerry, you know, I mean, <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll stop. Um, but, but yeah, it, it is a, it is a, it is, you know, all part of this lifting, you know, in, and a, I think a loss. There isn't this aging gracefully. There is, there isn't the natural beauty that's still resonant in even the fallen um, aging. Well, well this, this is interesting because I think we lose sight of some of the consolations that come with aging. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I posted something about beards the other day, and I, that was kind of fun. White beards. White beards. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's obviously, Glenn, you know it. You're, you're beginning to experience this, Tom. <laughs> but <laughs> I got but <laughs> there's a, uh, a, a, an upside that's lost I think yeah. because of our fixation on youth, I really do get a lot of deferential treatment uh, and not because I'm frail, uh, yeah. but just simply because there's something that communicates, I think at a very visceral fundamental level to other people. So like my, my granddaughters are fascinated with my face, <laughs> the white mm -hmm. beard and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, um, 
but the the this uh, attempt to art- make artificial youthfulness yeah. uh, has foregone that I mean, we just don't um, have a sense of the the consolations that well, and, God and has I, built into things. Yeah, and it makes you wonder if that that's why all of a sudden something about, you know, the natural losing of hair or the, this becomes almost a threat. And then therefore you do become almost seen as that which you have to, you know, a denial of, of certain aspects of, of, you know, like masculinity that come with aging become a threat. To, but but to, to whom? So, so no one is no one is threatened by by my beard, except me. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm getting. So, well, so like I, 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 I would get, say, could, could, yeah. But I get I get I get a lot, a lot of the women professors on the university, and some of the men too. No, no, I, I, I you know, I'm completely yeah. uh, straight about this. The most liberal yeah. people I know defer to me. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, because I think it's an involuntary thing. I don't think it's yeah. uh, I don't think yeah. it's socially constructed at all. I think it's it's something that is um, uh, built into the fabric of the of the world. You should read some of the early church fathers on beards. Yeah, I have. It's a lot of fun. But but they're pointing to that very thing, though. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I use those as jokes for obvious reasons, but yeah. they're they're pointing to the the exact phenomenon you're talking about, Chris. Yeah. So so your to your point, though, Tom. Yes, the yeah. liberal feminist uh, will make an argument against yeah. it but when they yeah. encounter you yeah it, there's a deference that they can't help but give yeah well i think yeah and i think my point with it with, with my, my comment was more like adonis they don't know what to make sense of something that isn't artificial and so you know maybe that explains on a, on a on a you know the fact that we are still embodied creatures may mean a deference that is natural that they don't even want would wouldn't wouldn't want to subscribe to. So like I was um, in, I was in Powell's you know bookstore in downtown Portland the other day a, a regular sort of hive of of nutty uh, you know sort of lesbian uh, and uh, gay culture you know kind of, a great bookstore by the way I, I don't think you should you should be scared away by the purple hair but if you <laughs> if you if you walk in. If you're a man and you're in good shape and you walk in, you've got gray hair and a beard and just stand up straight, everybody gets out of your way. <laughs> they, they literally do. They'll look at you and then their eyes will drop. Yeah. It happened again and again. All I, would just, I wasn't trying to threaten anybody. I was just walking around yeah. looking at people in the eye. <laughs> yeah. And, and they, would, they would all just kind of give way to me. But this is a neat episode in the artificial confronting something of the natural, the purple hair versus. I mean, and, this, <laughs> and yet, and, but you have to think it, it has to have it has to have in a world that is continuously trying to be removed from these things. It has right. to have effects. I mean, one is like you're saying there is there may be a, a certain way of deferent deference that they're not even aware of. They wouldn't want to admit. But on the other hand, there has got to be some kind of, you know. It isn't in. It isn't from their common sphere um, to see, and so. Um, um, but let me get the two real. Uh, so yeah, we, we should we of, should wrap it up with those two points. Yeah. So so the thing is, uh, uh, Donovan basically said, "How did how did we get to here in mass?" Well, one was the moving away from the classical virtue of you know basically studiousness, um, well formed appetites towards loving the the good known and receiving the gift and not exploiting, but actually trying empathetically, like science is actually moving back to um, 
to understand reality and therefore the gifts and then ex, you know being good stewards using things developing creating but not in a way that is kind of like francis bacon had argued basically crush the reality to get to know it um and but the, the opposite was the move towards curiosity where that appetite was no longer governed, those affections basically were trying to get knowledge through control, dominance, to impose their will on, uh, in greater ways. And you can, again, see the totalitarian impulse. And O'Donovan says, when divine providence basically came in, was starting to weaken in the sense that we could leave the consequences to God because we can't have control and know everything, um, there became this obsession with knowing everything and controlling. And this is where your totalitarian impulse is, you know. And then the next thing he talks about is this shift in virtues. Classically, wisdom, what he calls here was a classical masculine virtue, was tied very strongly to, to understanding natures. In other words, you could, and so in to have compassion, which was emphasized more strongly as a feminine virtue, those things were balanced, like the volitional and the intellectual, if you will, just like in God, in the classic Christian view, exercised in humans the right way. Well, they get kind of ripped apart, just like voluntarism, the will does against wisdom of God. Well, now basically, compassion gets read almost voluntaristically or as basically as a, the highest motivation. And he puts it this way. He goes, um, along with this shift, um, uh, basically, the uh, let me see where I have it. Um, basically, compassion, a, fa- a classical feminine virtue, now runs towards helping the suffering, which prompts it to immediate action with a resolution that doesn't require wisdom because the will to care is enough. And this is what I mean by that notion in CRT and all of the rest of fighting oppression. If it's grounded in this kind of volitional compassion, it sees suffering. And so without wisdom of recognizing that there is a created order, there are there is a nature we're related to, their attempt to resolve that. So they, they just adopt it, like you say, culturally, that oppression is wrong and they see suffering. And so for them, it's basically to move in what he would call almost an irrational compassion. I think he calls it sentimental humanism in, in other places. Um, and basically... This becomes the dominant, the dominant motivation at all costs. Now, I'm going to read this thing. We can end with this. But he basically talks about two different ways of depicting these two virtues. One is from Mozart's The Magic Flute, and the other one is from Beethoven's work uh, Fidelio. And he says, basically, in The Magic Flute, the difference between the two is the difference between two different worlds. The journey from darkness to light, which is charted in Mozart's masterpiece, Piece is presided over by the priest king Sarasatro, who represents wisdom. In Beethoven's program for in, for the enlightened, there is no place for the enlightened king, right? Um, nor could there be. The story tells of a devoted wife, Leonora, who, in order to rescue her husband Floriston, who had been imprisoned in the dungeons of a tyrant, Pizarro um, disguises herself as a young man. She cloaks herself in masculine virtues, but with compassion, right? Um, Fidelio, and becomes the assistant to the jailer. At the point of crisis, when Pizarro is about to slay Floriston, she withstands him in, as it were, by a preordained fate at the very moment when they're going to release the the prisoners um, and overthrow the the tyrant's power. Um, The message of the plot is simple. The revolution which will bring brotherhood in place of oppression is accomplished not by traditionally masculine virtue of wisdom applied to nature, 
but the traditionally feminine virtue of compassion, but that compassion needs to be cloaked in a higher masculine virtue in order for it to carry out its cause. And he says, superior technique of the sciences becomes that forcing vehicle to force that compassionate vehicle on the reality in the name of care, which basically has us put all of our arms down and say, okay, we have to run with it. And just think of it. What is the whole notion of affirming care? Affirming care is supposedly cloaked in this virtue of compassion, and it, but it uses scientific technique to do the alterations, power, you know, tr- traditionally masculine emphasis, but it also uses the force of the state to make sure everyone complies with that compassion, yeah. right? Yeah. What, what's, and, what's the book again that, uh, that you're, you're, you're reading from? This, this comes out of uh, Oliver Donovan's uh, Begotten, Not Made. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point to end. Uh, we've gone a little long. Um, we should uh, maybe uh, have a reference to the the book in the Those show works notes. The, yeah, yeah, so that people can – because that, that's very rich stuff. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast and making it all the way to the end. <laughs> We're glad for your, for your support. Uh, just so you know, we are now part of a uh, new podcasting network that's sponsored by Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. And we're glad to be connected to those guys. They're a great bunch down there. Uh, we're still on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and of course, we're still, it, it, you know, you can still find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all those places. Uh, but we wanted to make note about this new connection and uh, encourage you to check the, the shows that they sponsor out. Also, if you're interested in supporting our work, uh, you can do that through Patreon. We have a Patreon account, and we've got a number of people there who... Uh, uh, give to us on a monthly basis, and we try to do events for them to give them a little extra insight into how we do things and give them opportunities to ask us questions and so forth. So we uh, we we commend that to you if you wanna if you wanna support us. Anyway, we should make that I think the, uh, the final note. So uh, next time uh, we'll be back, and hopefully you will too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy the new book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, now available on Amazon.